Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVNH Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology, and neuroscience in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVNH Consulting, North America. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very happy to be back with you for this episode and to be introducing this episode's guest, Professor Sander Vanderlinden. Sander is Professor of Social Psychology and Society in the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge and Director of the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. Before coming to Cambridge, he held posts at Princeton and Yale University. His research interests center around the psychology of human judgment and decision making. In particular, he's interested in the social influence and persuasion process and how people are influenced by misinformation and gain resistance to persuasion through psychological inoculation. Professor Vanderlinden has published about 150 papers and is ranked among the top 1% of all social scientists worldwide and among the top 2% across all scientific fields. His research is regularly featured in the popular media, including outlets such as the New York Times, Rolling Stone, the BBC, CNN, The Economist, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. He's given many keynote lectures and talks and consults regularly about his research for the public, industry, and government, including venues such as the World Health Organization, the National Academy of Sciences, Microsoft, United Nations, WhatsApp Facebook, Google, UK Cabinet Foreign Office, EU Commission, and the US State Defense Department. At the beginning of this year, Sander published an amazing book called Foolproof, Why We Fall for Misinformation and How to Build Immunity, which will be at the heart of our conversation today. Sander, welcome to the Be Good podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me on. So, uh, Sander, this background is uh, really uh, impressive, and uh, thank you so much, uh, Suzanne. Um, so, Sander, uh, for being first, uh, a big thank you for being with us. But uh, before talking about your amazing book, we would like to know a little more about yourself and your career. And what I like very much and to uh, better understand who you are before understanding uh, what are your main ideas. So I think you receive uh, your PhD in psychology from the uh, LSE, London School of Economic and Political Science. Uh, can you tell us about how you came to be interested in psychology and maybe especially regarding persuasion and uh, influence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel the pressure now after this generous uh, introduction. Uh, so, you know, I, um, I've i always been interested personally in, in the influence and, and persuasion process. You know, when I was little, um, I, I used to uh, see if I could dupe my friends with false information. Uh, and, and then, of course, debrief them afterwards, as a good psychologist would do. Uh, but, but just in the moments to see how people would respond as a, sort of a sarcastic um, sort of thing. Um, and so I would say, oh, you know, class is canceled today. 
and they would be like, really, really? And they'd be on their way out and I'd be like, no, guys, I'm just I'm just kidding. But why? Why does that sound credible to you? Um, and uh, I fear it's because they trust uh, what 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 you are saying. And so I was exploring these sort of behavioral features around uh, why people believe things uh, from a very early age. Um, I don't think my parents were necessarily eager for me to study psychology. Uh, they were like, what are you going to do with that? Um, and so I actually started um, when I started, I started more around economics. Uh, and, you know, at that time, behavioral economics was just a thing. And so it it, it, um, it allowed me to sort of calibrate my interests a bit. I started thinking, well, if I have to do this economics thing, um, maybe the behavioral sort of side of it is actually what interests me um, me more. And then um, I started uh, taking classes in, in psychology and economics and, and slowly sort of drifted towards uh, my, my true passion. Uh, what I liked about economics were models, and I liked the idea of, of modeling behavior and prediction and um, but I just felt that it, it, it um, well, I hope I don't offend any economists, but, but, you know, it, that there weren't realistic, uh, models of, uh, of what people do in the real world. And I wanted to experiment on people, uh, as I had been doing my whole life, uh, but, but, uh, uh, for a living, uh, really. And, um, the other part of the story is that when I was young, my parents kind of made clear, you know, I started asking questions about, hmm, you know, why, why don't we have, um, you know, more family or why is there only you and and my grandma and my grandpa and uh they sort of told me when i was little um uh, maybe i don't know because my parents are pretty direct they sort of said well you know they were all executed during world war ii uh um you know by the nazis uh, pretty much uh and so you know at the at the time you know we were jewish not not religious but you know culturally and and um, yeah, it was a weird thing to process. I wasn't overly, you know, just kind of take that as a given. I wasn't thinking, oh, now I have to make my life mission uh, to, to study propaganda. But later in life, I started thinking more about this problem of, um, well, how can it be that, you know, so many people become convinced of conspiracy theories and false information, even to the point of, of silently kind of accepting uh, the the uh, genocide of uh, of whole groups of people, and I started thinking about well, you know, what what goes on in 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 you know it's a complex sort of process, and I thought well, psych psychology would be the discipline to help me find some answers, um, and uh, eventually I ended up at the LSE uh, and uh, not doing this actually studying a different topic because you know in the real world as I'm sure you know uh, we don't always get to do what what uh, <laughs> what what we want to do because um, you know. Y in, in Europe, you also need to have a funded uh, offer. And so my funding came around. Um, I, what I did want to do, what I was clear on, um, was I wanted to study something that had social and societal significance. It wasn't sort of I want to do me search, but, but I, I did want to work on a, on a problem. And at the time, almost nobody was thinking about climate change as a social problem. Um, and of course, now we have, you know, hundreds of, of studies on behavioral science and climate, but there was zero out there at, at the time. Um, and, um, you know, I was interested in this dilemma. I was like, well, this is a risk that's distant to people. You know, it's hard to experience. People don't really understand this. Um, what's the what's the behavioral sort of aspect of this? And, and, and I uh, got funded by um, by an institute at uh, at the LSE that um, was mostly employing economists, but they thought let's let's you know gamble and let's take this behavioral guy on um, and and see what he does. 
Um, and so I started studying the, the psychology of, um, of risk and um, decision making about climate change. And um, yeah, halfway through, I guess it's a long story for a podcast, but, but half, halfway, halfway through, <clears throat> I started getting back to this idea that people are actually not acting, at least some, because there's a lot of false information about the topic. There are a lot of conspiracy theories. Um, um, sometimes people just, it's not a conspiracy. People just have the wrong information. Uh, sometimes people act not because they don't have enough information, but because they're not motivated. And so I started becoming fascinated by this puzzle um, and um, it was around then that I came across this this idea of inoculation, and I, I started talking to people, um, and they sort of said, "Well, these are interesting ideas you have, but there would be a whole separate PhD. You basically want to, you know, revise that theory and 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 reverse engineer it and do new things with it. But you're already kind of halfway down this this other path. And so, being good advisors, they said, "No, try to finish this." And then, um, you know, maybe you can work on that. So that's what I did. I mean, I finished my PhD and I was very, still remained very fascinated by, you know, big problems like vaccinations, climate change. And then as soon as I finished my PhD, I, I got back to this problem of misinformation and can we do something about it through, uh, through inoculation. And that's, uh, that was kind of my, um, um, my, my path. But yeah, if you want to know about me, you know, I wasn't, I don't come from a family with a lot of professors. Uh, as an undergrad, I never thought I would be a professor. I mean, I went to California State University at Chico, which in the U.S. is widely known as, uh, as quote unquote, more of a party school than a, uh, a scientifically oriented program. Um, so I, I never thought science was uh, was something I would be doing. Uh, and so it's yeah, it's interesting that I ended up here. Okay, great. And do you have any mentors that you would like to uh, mention that had a, a big influence on your work and your career? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, there are two people, really. The first was um, when I was in California, I took a class on influence, and that's really what, what made me so interested in it. And the textbook kind of was Bob Cialdini's uh, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And I was just so fascinated by the field work that he was doing because I was less interested in sitting in a lab all day and doing these experiments. And what, what the professor had us do was uh, take this book, go out to stores, walk around and see if you can spot the uh, the principles of influence in action and kind of do a case study and write some essays on it. And I thought that was really cool. I mean, I'm European uh, originally. Uh, I'm not sure how you how you feel about this, Eric, but but, uh, you know, Dutch universities are here's a three hour lecture uh, and there is there, there are no quizzes. There's no interaction. There are no field trips. Um, and so it's you know, it's it's kind of. Um, I found the U.S. system to be quite uh, entertaining in that sense. Um, I mean, you get points for participation in the U.S., which, you know, amazing. Um, and not so, exactly the same. Not exactly the same, but it was, it, it was, I enjoyed it very much because it was a different kind of way of learning, uh, more, more experiential in some ways. And so, yeah, so I went to the store and um, I was just blown away by some of these insights about how things are arranged, how the, the music, how it influences people. And I was like, wow, this is what I do. I want to do. I want to sit here and experiment on people and see how they make real decisions and and how they're influenced by what other people are doing and saying and that's kind of what sparked my interest in the influence process and i think bob cialdini's book was uh, was crucial when i talked to him for my book i i i told him um and uh and i think it's actually funny i said because i what i ended up doing was going so for people who don't know you know bob went undercover for years to try to uncover these principles of influence and I said, what I ended up doing is go go undercover in the in the world of manipulation. 
and try to understand their tactics and then reverse that and and sort of inoculate people against them and we found some some um some common ground there and in fact he told me that mcguire who who is um a, a social psychologist early on who theorized about inoculation who actually gave him the idea to go out he said you know mcguire actually visited me uh in in arizona many years ago and we were talking about how to study influence and he said uh, look bob if you want to if you want to know about what people do, why don't you go and actually uh, go to shops and, and see what, what, what tactics they use? And and uh, and so we were both inspired by Maguire, who would be the, the second. Not the same generation, but the same inspiration. <laughs> not not the same generation, but the uh, the same uh, the same inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I should also say, I think the second book I read was Dan Ariely's uh, and I just had to play. Uh, we were on a um, uh, on a boat. Uh, actually, on Friday here in Cambridge, um, talking about talking about some stuff, and uh, um, you know, just the way that that he he kind of uh, drew from his own you know personal uh, history and the types of questions he was asking about himself and other people and doing experiments around that. Um, I thought that that I found I found that really interesting when when I was a, a younger student, um, and so uh, so yeah, so that was kind of a long story short. That's that's how we got there. Love that. Yeah. No, I love hearing stories like that, because I always tell people, once you start learning about this stuff, you can't unsee it. You start to see it everywhere, which is, is a really fun way to navigate the world. So Sandra, as I mentioned earlier, your recent book, Foolproof, Why We Fall for Misinformation, How to Build Immunity, was just published at the beginning of this year, 2023. Before we get into the content of it, could you tell us more about the inspiration behind writing it? Yeah, so I've always wanted to, uh, to to write a book. So when I got into academia, I started doing blogs for, you know, Scientific American, Psychology Today, because I felt this immense uh, responsibility that uh, I needed to let people know what we're doing with their money, sort of speak. Uh, and I just felt like it would be useful for people to, to understand how psychology is relevant to their own lives. Um, and I wanted to tell people about, you know, why, why is it so difficult for us to act on climate or... Um, um, why is it scary to think about vaccines or, uh, you know, why is artificial food weird uh, to, to people when they think about eating it? And so I, I, I was always writing for popular audience because um, I felt that was kind of what I uh, wanted to do is, is what, what I call psychology in, in the public interest. And um, then I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book about my, my own research, I, I want to have enough to say. And so uh, this book was in the back of my mind for a long time, but I didn't start writing it until I felt like I actually had something um, interesting to say. Um, and of course, the, the topic of misinformation is timely and, and urgent and important. And I wanted to publish this book, you know, 2016, 2017, but but I just felt I wasn't it wasn't quite there yet. You know, I was feeling the urgency around this topic, but I thought, you know, we need to do more studies. I, I want to have more um, uh, more insights. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting was, um, you know, some of our work with social media companies, some of our work with uh, governments, I, I thought it would be interesting for people to know how does government work around these uh, issues? What are what are some of the pluses? What are some of the minuses? Uh, what goes on with social media algorithms? I mean, there is there are lots of books about this from journalists, and, and they're fascinating. Um, but I thought, well, you know, Something interesting I could do here is sort of combine my insight knowledge of, of what goes on at these companies with the actual research and try to keep an, an independent, uh, neutral point of view and evaluate the evidence from um, from both perspectives. Um, uh, and then actually also talk about all the research. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I didn't want to write a book that says, 
misinformation is a big problem. It sucks, but I don't have any solutions, right? Um, and so I wanted, you know, I wanted to wait until I could say something useful about how we could actually counter it. Um, and that was kind of the inspiration for ultimately um, for for writing the book. Is that yeah, misinformation is a big problem. Um, I've studied it, but also here's some some potential solutions. And when that all came together for me, uh, that that was when I felt ready to to sort of add some personal stories and context and and actually make progress on uh, on this. Fantastic. So you mentioned in the book that your goal is to gain resistance to persuasion by proofing our minds against fake news and misinformation. If there was one big headline or learning that you would like the audience to remember after our conversation today about your book, what would that be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I think if people uh, don't remember anything else, um, I would say that uh, prevention uh, is better than cure. Um, so after studying this for such a long time, the number one insight that I've learned is that it's so much easier to prevent um, people from falling for misinformation than it is to de-radicalize someone. Um, and so when we have an opportunity to pre-bunk, um, I would always take that opportunity over debunking. Not sometimes people misunderstand what I'm saying, not that debunking isn't important or useful, absolutely it is, but when you can, I think we should have a first line of defense. And that's really what pre-bunking is all about. Proactive risk management of this problem rather than reactive management. Okay, thanks. Start. Well, uh, I would like to go into the uh, detail with what you call the viruses of the mind. Could you explain this analogy between biological viruses and the viruses of the mind? Yeah, so the, the thread that runs throughout the book is the viral uh, analogy. And um, of course, that what makes it also a book of popular sort of discussions that people uh, um, can have. Um, but I actually think that there is a lot of evidence um, to suggest that there is this strong link uh, between the immune system of the mind, if you will, uh, and the immune system of the body. And so um, the, I think the first point, uh, and perhaps the strongest point, is that if you actually take models from epidemiology to understand how viruses spread, you can take we can take these models pretty much unadapted and apply them to the context of, of misinformation uh, in social networks. And what you find is that the disease model actually works really well to try to understand the viral spread of misinformation. So think about a network, somebody shares something that's false, um, you see it, you then retweet it or share it with other people and it propagates through a network pretty much like a virus. Um, you know, we can quibble about the, the level of exposure. Is it single contact? Is it multiple contacts that you need in order to get, you know, but there the, the analogy works too. Um, if I, I hope, I hope this never happens, Eric, but let's say if I sneeze in your vicinity and, uh, you know, uh, uh, doesn't mean you get ill, right? So maybe you need multiple exposures from different people who are around you who are ill. It works the same with misinformation. Sometimes you're not convinced by somebody sharing misinfo, but if you hear it from trusted people in your network time and again, now it's gonna it's gonna sound persuasive. And so there are a lot of these uh, a lot of these analogies that I started noticing. Um, and so for computational scientists, the the fact that that uh, that uh, misinformation spread like a virus is really uh, evident. I mean, there, there's really no not much debate there. We can debate about the complexity of it, but but that's you know that's pretty much um, how we can account for at least uh, some of the spread of, of misinformation. Now, um, the other part is that um, there are other interesting analogies. Sometimes people spread misinformation without knowing it, 
which is kind of akin to the asymptomatic spread of a virus, right? That you don't know that you have it, but you're spreading it to other people. So for some people, you know, they don't know that it's misinformation. They're just acting or sharing it, right? For other people, they do know, and they're intentionally sort of sort of sharing it. So there's the, you know, different aspects there. Um, and then the, 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 the mind virus analogy is really about how people become infected and radicalized with these ideas. So a virus kind of attacks a host cell and it takes over part of the machinery of the cell with the intention of propagating itself. Um, and I think that is the single purpose of, uh, of often of misinformation too. It's to try to take over our judgments, distort our memories, our perceptions with the aim of propagating itself. I mean, a conspiracy theory is not going to be doing anything if it just dupes one person, right? Uh, uh, well, actually, it might. I talk about one guy who was duped who then killed his brother. Um, and so, you know, uh, again, like the disease model, if you have, you, you only need one patient zero to have a major problem. But I think in terms of spread, um, what you need is that, that there are susceptible hosts that, that the, you know, an environment in which the virus can replicate. And I think to some extent, I wanted to examine what is it about our minds that makes people susceptible as a host uh, to believing in misinformation. And I talk about a lot of things. I talk about, you know, motivation, identity, but also cognitive factors, how the brain is fooled uh, by misinformation um, and cues that we use that aren't perfect. Like, you know, the more misinformation is repeated, the more people are to think that it's true, regardless of the veracity of, of misinformation. That's just kind of how the brain um, operates. Uh, and so um, people can become radicalized over time by misinformation. And I, I give the case of, of Anthony in the book, who is this 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 young fellow who who wasn't into politics. I mean, he was selling solar panels in a, in a suburb uh, by by all accounts who during the pandemic, he became consumed with the conspiracy that the election was stolen um, so much so that he went out and in, in a in a, you know, wearing uh, militia um, signia and, and, and a rifle and he stormed the uh, the capital. And I mean, I think that's and his lawyer even said you can catch this virus. Um, it really takes over part of your cognitive machinery um, and makes you do things that you might um, uh, regret afterwards. Um, so so I started saying, well, there's all of these interesting analogies and some of it is actually really close. And then, of course, the final part was, well, if misinformation spreads and behave like a virus, can we vaccinate and inoculate people against it? And that's, of course, been a whole research program. Um, in terms of actually training the mind's immune system uh, to, to spot, quote unquote, the, the misinformation virus. And so that's where it all came together for me in the three parts that make up the book, the uh, how the, you know, how viruses take hold in people, how they spread and how we inoculate against it. Okay, because uh, before we speak about uh, solution, I would like to come back a little about what is at play with misinformation, the cognitive bias. Maybe you speak about the illusory uh, truth effect, uh, also the role of motivated brain. Could you go uh, a little deeper to explain uh, this? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think there's some 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 heated debates in the field that I try to cover in this book in, in hopefully a, a nuanced manner to give everyone uh, you know some some airtime um, who is who is in this field in some in some respects. Uh, so some people believe that most of this problem is not because people are evil actors or or motivated by um, by 
politics or identity, you know, they're just not paying attention on social media. And, and you know, when we have limited attention, uh, you know, we're constrained in, in, in how much we can process. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a problem of accuracy. Then on social media, accuracy is not being promoted. So people lose sight of, of what's accurate and they're sharing tons of stuff that isn't true, but, but it's not nefarious. I mean, they, you know, people are just kind of duped because uh, they're not paying attention. And there are some cognitive biases there that, that we are all susceptible to. And then there's other people who say, well, actually, I think what's going on here is that people have deep social, spiritual, religious, political motivations to want to distort the truth uh, and to interpret information in ways that are consistent with their own worldview and their own agendas. And that's why people cling to information that isn't true, because it reinforces important aspects about the groups that we belong to. And that's a bit more of a nefarious, cynical view on, on human social interaction. And I think both are true. Um, I think in some cases, particularly in the political domain, what we're seeing is that people are motivated uh, by, by, by politics, right, by, by their political identities. In fact, we've done studies um, where... Um, across millions of posts on both social media, uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook, both uh, Congress accounts, both media accounts, what we find consistently is what predicts viral engagement is this process of outgroup derogation. So for every additional word in a post that dunks on the other side, the more traction you get. Um, and so, you know, people, what's being rewarded is, is basically shitposting about the, uh, about the other side. So that's, you know, I think that's part of it. But we also ran this experiment where, and I was talking to, to Cass Sunstein about this a few a few weeks ago, uh, and um, he, I think he was he was fascinated by this particular finding. Is that you know when we asked partisans in the U.S., we gave them a series of headlines, some fake, some true. We asked which are true, which are false. Um, ah, people do so so. Um, then we say in another condition, we're not going to pay you to do this task again with the goal of giving us the correct answer. Now, all of a sudden, people seem to know the answer uh, to some of these questions. Uh, and particularly, what was interesting is that people weren't better at, at detecting fake news because we were not giving them any skills. But what was happening was they became better at now saying that true news that made the other side look good is perhaps more likely to be true after all. So before, when I saw headlines about, you know, if you're a Republican and you see a Democrat headline and there was something positive about Democrats, you would say that's oh, fake news. Um, but now that you're being paid, you say, oh, OK, well, maybe this is true after all uh, and vice versa. So paying people not only reduced partisan bias on this task, but it also helped people discern better. Um, and so that signals that actually people do know the answer, but there's other motivations that are that are going on. Um, um, right. But then there's uh, and this is the last thing I'll say. There are things about the brain um, that I think cannot be explained by these factors that, that everyone is susceptible to. And one of those things you mentioned is illusory truth. And there's this huge amount of research on the simple fact that the brain mistakes fluency uh, for, for truth. So the more you hear something, uh, the more familiar it becomes. And what we mean by familiarity is just slightly more technical. It's, it's fluency, which means the ease with which your brain can process something. So claims that are familiar are processed faster than claims that are non-familiar. So things you hear that, that coincide with what you already believe, we're faster at processing and integrating those claims than things that contradict what you believe, because now you have to stop and say, what? Um, and that creates friction. Um, and so what producers of misinformation often do is they keep repeating the false claim, um, sometimes referred to as, as the big lie, because um, 
uh, Nazi Germany's um, um, uh, minister of propaganda was very well aware of this rule. In fact, he said that um, the more outrageous the lie, the better, because people are unlikely to think that you would make up a lie so outrageous, because who would get away with that? Um, and so he said, actually, the best way to do people is to come up with outrageous lies and, and keep repeating them. And what you find in, um, in research is that, indeed, misinformation people rate it as more true um, over time, the more they hear it. So a typical experiment is kind of like this. So I give you a set of claims, um, and some of them I repeat, and others I don't. And then I look at the truth ratings over time, and you find that people think the repeated claims are more true than the non-repeated claims, regardless of their veracity. Um, it turns out that prior knowledge about these claims doesn't actually protect you. And so when they ask um, about the Scottish skirt that uh, Scottish men wear, which is a kilt, and people at the beginning say that's a kilt, and if you now call it something else repeatedly, people don't switch categories, right? They don't all of a sudden say, you know, now it's this or that, but they now think it's more likely that it's actually called something else. And so you've created some serious doubt uh, about a claim just by sheer repetition. It also has other effects. People think that it becomes less immoral to share false things because the more you hear it, the more familiar it sounds. Maybe there's something to it after all. Maybe it's less likely to be wrong because you see it multiple times. So people, I think it's actually less morally wrong to share misinformation over time the more you hear it. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a, um, a big a big issue. Um, and it's easy to trick. So there's people who say, oh, but humans are complex. They're so sophisticated. You can't do people. And I was like, no, actually, it's trivial. Uh, you can do people in the lab. We do it all the time. Uh, if I tell you, uh, you know this because you read the book, but if I, if I ask you um, how many uh, animals that, uh, um, um, that Moses take on the ark with him, you know, how many animals of each kind, uh, you know, people will give the, the typical answer. But then you say, hey, but, but it was Noah, it wasn't Moses, right? Because um, our brains are just filling in familiar patterns and you can easily trick people um, that way. Um, and um, so, yeah, so, so a lot of information, I think, leverages these basic cognitive biases that we have um, and others sort of play into to identity and social and tribal motivations more, uh, particularly when it's of more uh, political variety. Um, and some are um, um, some kind of married to, and, and that's where it becomes uh, extremely tricky. So let me give you an example. Um, Eric, more people who are vaccinated are in the hospital, okay? The COVID vaccine is killing people. Um, so everyone who is in the hospital uh, is more likely to die because they've been vaccinated. Um, now, from a cognitive point of view, this is the base rate fallacy. Uh, it, it's just because most people are vaccinated in most countries, uh, right? And so that's why you see more people in the hospital who are vaccinated, because most people, 90% or more of the population are vaccinated. Um, so it's a base rate fallacy. But it also plays on a very emotional and political issue for people. So they want to believe, some people may want to believe that that's the case, because they have negative feelings about the vaccine. Um, and so that's, I think, where misinformation gets a lot of traction, when it kind of combines these cognitive and, and social explanations. And that's what I try to illustrate in, uh, in the book. So there are a psychological reason for misinformation, uh, individual, I would say, uh, uh, cognitive bias, but uh, there are also, uh, and that's why misinformation is maybe uh, uh, so uh, dangerous, uh, things get even worse. Uh, because the misinformation virus spread. And Suzanne has some question about this. 
Yeah, so we want to get into this a little bit, Sander, but first, just at a high level, could you explain how social media impacts the speed and the audience of misinformation? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people ask, uh, oh, but what's different now? I mean, wasn't propaganda always around? Um, and I go to quite some some lengths in the book, and um, um, historians haven't corrected me yet, so so I think my calculations must be at least somewhat uh, somewhat accurate of how long it took to spread a message in ancient Rome uh, when they had the courier system, right? And and um, I go through some lengths to, to, to actually illustrate that, well, this would take at least a few weeks or at most a week to get one message across to another person or another country. And and actually, you know, to, to try to spread things back then was actually fairly difficult. Um, now, and I do some calculations, right, even with WhatsApp's restrictions, um, if you if you can send out a message to, to 20 people who can each forward it to 20 other people um, um, right in a group that can have, let's say, 100 people, then all of a sudden that's a factorial. Right. And all of a sudden we're talking about millions of people within uh, the, the split of a second. Um, in fact, on Twitter, uh, if you look at the amount of followers, you know, let's say someone like Obama has is millions of, uh, uh, of, of followers. So as soon as he tweets something, millions of people see it and research that has actually tried to calculate um, some of the parameters of how misinformation spreads. I mean, these are not just anecdotes. I mean, some research has actually calculated that misinformation compared to more accurate information spreads faster, deeper, and further, um, at least within the context of, um, of Twitter. Um, but it's also been demonstrated on other platforms. It is influenced by the structure of a network. So this won't always be the case. Uh, for example, on Reddit, the situation is slightly different. It's actually more difficult for misinformation to take on those kinds of uh, spreading patterns that are extremely different from reliable information. But um, on a lot of platforms, you do see these type of, uh, of dynamics um, and they actually calculated, um, you know, that on, on average, um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a multiple there, right? So it takes the, um, um, the, the you know, it takes misinformation um, much less time. Uh, to reach, let's say, 1,500 people um, than, uh, than the truth. And they can actually, what we call cascades, which are a kind of a uh, um, series of, of retweets, they can actually calculate how long does it take for misinformation to reach uh, 1,500 people, um, right? It's a lot faster than, than reliable information. Um, and in fact, it, it propagates much faster in, uh, in the system. Um, um, and you can put a number on that, you know, six times, five times uh, faster. You know, I'm sure that varies by platform and, and so on. But but I think the, the core of the message um, is that actually misinformation does um, um, not only spread like uh, a virus, but it, but it outpaces the spread of, um, of, of factual information. And there are some explanations for that. Misinformation has, quote unquote, fingerprints, um, which are referred to as the DNA structure of misinformation that actually make it distinct from reliable information in a number of ways. Um, um, for example, uh, misinformation tends to be shocking. Uh, it tends to, to elicit surprise, novelty. Um, it uses moral, emotional words, things like pedophiles, murder, um, you know, to, to try to get traction with the sort of QAnon types of stories. It has to be it has to be shocking to people. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going to share it because, you know, what if it's true or what if this is really happening? Um, and so it leverages a lot of those elements. And that's what sort of causes it to uh, to spread. Um, but then, um, yeah, there's other platforms like WhatsApp. I talk a lot about WhatsApp in the book because it's a, it's a private, it's a closed system. Um, right. And so you can't easily intervene on those platforms. Um, and um, when rumors spread, 
Um, that makes, you know, I, I talk about the Indian uh, lynchings, for example. So in India, people were lynched because of false rumors that were spreading uh, uh, very fast on WhatsApp. And if it's a closed end-to-end -end encryption, it means you can't really intervene uh, in the content that's, uh, with the content that's being spread. And so there, there, there are good reasons for having people like end-to-end -end privacy and end-to-end -end encryption, but from a misinformation management problem, right, that's also, um, that's also a problem. Um, so I think that there's the speed, there's philosophy, um, there's, there's reach. So we're reaching many more people now. So it's not only that it travels fast, so we're also reaching many more people. Um, and then there's the, the issue of the medium. Uh, the medium is just different. It's much more visual now. So if you look at analyses, a lot of disinformation, a lot of misinformation is actually visual. Um, now with the, with the, of course, rise of AI, uh, its visuals are increasingly being manipulated. Um, and it also works slightly differently, right? WhatsApp, WhatsApp comes from trusted people usually. There's this sort of, well, you know, I get so many requests from people. Oh, is this thing that I received in my WhatsApp group uh, uh, real? Um, and it's, it has this inherent value because it comes from people you, um, you trust. And so there's dynamics that revolve around the, the medium. We haven't even talked about echo chambers and filter bubbles uh, yet, uh, which are also, uh, so echo chambers are not unique to social media. We have echo chambers offline as well, but they're certainly exacerbated um, on social media. Um, so echo chambers, meaning that people who are like-minded cluster together. And if the whole network does that, we get polarization because, you know, people who, who like this are going to end up here. People who like this are going to end up there. Um, and if there's some process that causes a bit of friction in that system, then they're going to drift uh, further apart. And that's often the goal of misinformation to try to polarize people and to play in, into those, uh, to those narratives. Um, and the echo chambers, they're exacerbated by filter bubbles, which are unique to the online world, which is the idea that social media companies are using your digital data, traces that you leave behind on the internet, your cookies, the things you like on Facebook, your search um, um, terms on Google. They're all used to predict the types of things that you will engage with and what keeps you engaged. Uh, think about YouTube, maximizing your viewing time. Um, and so those algorithms add a new layer on top that if you're already watching something dodgy, the likelihood of you keep wanting to watch dodgy content goes up because of um, the fact that we have filter bubbles. If you're already in an echo chamber, right, that's not helping. Um, um, and so that's sort of compounding the problem at the same time. And so we have all of these new characteristics that I think we haven't really thought about um, in terms of how they affect people and the spread of, of information in society that's kind of led to this massive problem. I mean, when they came up with Facebook uh, and, and MySpace, for, for people who are older like like me, uh, um, who, who had a MySpace page back in the day in, in, uh, in college, um, they weren't thinking about this is going to be some platform to spread misinformation on, right? They were thinking about connecting people. Um, but I think at the same time, I didn't really think about, well, what is a what could be a negative consequence of the way that people connect and, and congregate? And could bad actors use that to spread and reach people with, with misinformation? Does it make it more difficult to disseminate accurate information? Turns out if people are in echo chambers and their viewpoints are not congenial to the, to the facts that are being spread, then you're not going to penetrate that echo chamber. You're just gonna you know, speak to the, or sing to the choir more, um, uh, preach to the choir um, more or less. And so I think, you know, there's all of these challenge design challenges that we hadn't thought of because we didn't really take into account human psychology when, when initially designing these, uh, these platforms. I think we need some solutions. It's getting pretty grim.
<laughs> I haven't even talked about micro-targeting yet. No, micro-targeting is also uh, terrible. <laughs> so maybe share some some solution. And if uh, our listener want to know more about your fantastic uh, acronym or micro-targeting, they will have to read the book. But solution, please. Solutions, yes, yes. So, you know, we started thinking about what are the... Um, the common markers of um, misinformation. So let's study people who do this professionally for, for a living. Let's read reports on, on um, um, propaganda and, and throughout history, what are some of the most common techniques? And we thought, well, what if we could document all of these techniques? And we, have, uh, we came up with an acronym for, for this um, called uh, DEPICT. It was about depicting manipulation for people. Um, and um, what if we could then reverse engineer the process, so to speak. So what if we take the virus, then we synthesize a weakened dose out of that virus and refute it in advance um, so that people can build up mental or cognitive antibodies. Um, and that's what, be, what's, what ultimately became this idea of, uh, of the psychological vaccine, which follows the, the biomedical analogy exactly, right? Just as vaccines expose us to a weakened or inactivated strain uh, over virus. Important distinction. You can do pre-bunking with weakened or inactivated strains, and I can get to that uh, later on, uh, to try to trigger the production of antibodies, right, to help confer resistance against uh, future infection. We thought, well, there is some research, you know, from back in the day um, when people were concerned about brainwashing and uh, military and things like that, that was looking at this idea of inoculation theory, and that's how it got to McGuire. In fact, it was in the library in the LSE that I came across a um, an article from um, the the uh, late 60s, um, obscure article that he wrote for a popular audience uh, detailing some of his initial experiments. And I thought, you know, McGuire, in that, during that time, we didn't know that misinformation spreads like a, like a virus. Uh, he, he would have never realized how apt that metaphor actually is. Um, and he never really tested it in the context of propaganda. So we thought, let's pick up where he left off with this idea and really bring that into the digital 21st century. And so the idea was, well, you know, just as our bodies need um, a lot of copies of what the invader looks like, you know, some invaders are obvious to the body, whereas other proteins around viruses uh, look more like proteins we have in our cells, and it takes a bit more, more effort for your immune system to learn to differentiate them. It, we kind of found through numerous experiments, it works the same way with the mind. Um, you really need to be able to train the mind to differentiate or understand these manipulation techniques. What do they look like? What are their patterns? And can you give people a weakened dose in advance and refute that so that people can then build up this, this psychological resistance, which was the complete opposite of fact-checking, of course. Right? Fact-checking, you give people more facts. Um, and McGuire had this fascinating story back in the day where he said, you know, th this idea of... Uh, you know, the, the U.S. government was concerned about brainwashing because some of the troops hadn't come home from the Korean War. I mean, this narrative was not, as I mentioned in the book, there were other reasons for that. But but the point is that the government was concerned about brainwashing. And they said, we need to give sol U.S. soldiers, we need to educate them about capitalism. Why, you know, why is America so great? We need to have, you know, values. And um, McGuire said, no, no, I think that's the wrong idea. The issue here is that people weren't prepared for the types of attacks that they were going to be facing on their ideology. Uh, and so what you need to do 
is actually give people a weakened dose of the types of, of, of persuasive attacks that they might be facing in the future so they can become inoculated. And I thought that that was such an interesting uh, process that we tried to, to actually work this out in reality of how would you would actually do that. And that's kind of what, what's the diff what the big difference is that, yeah, we expose people to a weakened dose of misinformation or the tricks used, and then we refute it in advance and let people practice. Um, and um, so how do you do this um, to, to get to the point? Uh, we decided to take some inspiration from uh, Severus Snape uh, from the Harry Potter novels, um, who um, I, somebody, somebody at Cambridge made a joke about me that uh, because I studied this, they, they, some library tweeted out, oh, we got our, our defense against a dark arts teacher giving a lecture today. And, so, you know, this went viral and people thought it was funny. So I've come to appreciate the, uh, uh, the Harry Potter novels. And so I started looking up Severus Snape. And in fact, I learned he had this wonderful quote. He said, um, in order to, to, to truly understand the, um, the dark arts, our defenses must be as flexible and inventive as the arts that we uh, seek to undo. Because he was talking about how the dark arts are evolving and they're becoming more sophisticated. Um, and so uh, the standard response is not going to be sufficient. We need, to, we need to be flexible and inventive. And that really resonated with me even after when my students told me that actually most of the defense against the dark arts teachers die a pretty miserable death uh, pretty soon after they, they vacate that position. But uh, I'm still kicking for, for now. But, but the, the, um, the idea was, how could we do this? And that's where we came up with this idea of the game. And this, this became the bad news game, which was the, one of the first fake news games. It was a fully fledged social media simulation. Um, and it exposes people to, to weakened doses. It's a simulated environment. It simulates Twitter. Um, we've never been sued by Twitter, luckily. Maybe now that Musk has has, uh, has, has taken over, uh, but but uh, um, it, it's it, you know it's not explicit, but it's meant to kind of simulate Twitter. Um, and and your goal is really not to be fact checker. You're stepping into the shoes of a manipulator. Your idea is really to get a a, sent, a controlled dose. Of course, we we control the weakened dose. People are not spreading any actual misinformation. It's all fictional. Um, that's what makes it weakened. We use a lot of humor and sarcasm. Um, and the idea is that you need to gain as many followers as possible without losing credibility. So if you're being ludicrous, which is not what a professional propagandist would do, then you lose all credibility and, and points. So you have to be tricky um, and you have to work with these weakened examples. And depict in the framework stands for discrediting um, um, emotion, uh, polarization, impersonation, um, uh, uh, conspiracy theories and uh, trolling. Um, there's more techniques. I'm happy to talk about those, but those were the the big ones that we found. And um, you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, oh, but but can't anyone use discrediting?" And then sort of the answer is, well, yes. I mean, discrediting is very general, but in the context of misinformation, it's actually quite specific. So you know, when when a fact checker discredits misinformation, they use science, they use analytical thinking. When misinformation producers do it, that has very different fingerprints. So they tend to use things like your fake news. Uh, they use denial, they use deflection. Um, and so they use all of these dirty tricks that are part of, uh, of, of discrediting. Um, and so what we do in the game is, is we show uh, people some of these tricks and people can actually actively experiment with them. This is what we call active inoculation. People are sort of building up their own antibodies. They can spread content, they get reactions, it's interactive. And, and so, yeah, and so that's where we started testing people in the game before and after to see if they improve in their ability to spot misinformation that makes use of these manipulation uh, techniques. And then we started thinking about what, what if it's a broader spectrum vaccine? You know, what if you're inoculated and we show you new variants of the virus, right? So, so, so slightly different variants that you haven't been inoculated against. How far does the protection extend? 
does it decay over time? Um, can we do this in other domains? Um, and so, um, yeah, it kind of took off. I'll stop talking there, because but it kind of took off from um, from there. And we learned a lot about how this actually works and and um, how people respond to weakened doses of disinformation. And then we found that if social media companies want to implement this in the real world, they don't want the weakened dose to be you know too risky. They want in a completely inactive, completely inactive dose. Um, and um, maybe I'll, I'll end my um, my story there. Um, you know, how do you do this in um, in a, in a way that's kind of risk free because that's what they wanted. And so you know we were you know our game is kind of edgy. It's meant to stimulate the immune system, make people a little uncomfortable. Um, you know, jumpstart the psychological because mostly sleeping, right? We're not always paying attention, and so the idea that you're being manipulated, you know, wakes people up. And then you know you have to engage with some um, some uh, you know some real content. Um, and so it's uh, you know, as a scientist, we allow you know we want it to be non-political. So you could you can make fun of climate change, you can make fun of big pharma, you can make fun of the government. Um, the games are very non-political. We just want to learn people at their own pace to come to terms with how these techniques on either side. Uh, can be used. Sometimes they can even be used by real outlets, um, you know, and so that sometimes, you know, real, the New York, and I covered this in the book, the New York Times apologized, right, about their coverage of the, the, the war in, in Iraq. The BBC has used the sort of fake expert thing that we talk about around climate, you know, propping up contrarians just to have balance in, uh, um, in, in the media. And so impersonation is about, you know, using fake experts and um, um, uh, impersonating politicians and things like that. Um, I talked about the case of Warren Buffett. Uh, some guy made up an account for Warren Buffett. It wasn't really Warren Buffett. There was a manipulation of the Twitter handle. But he got thousands of followers within minutes. And you know, was tweeting out nonsense like, invest in what makes you happy. I mean, maybe that's fairly innocent, right? But, but, uh, um, but the social media companies, right? They said, well, if we were to implement this, right, for real, um, a 20-minute game, I mean, it's, they said it's cute, you know, public-facing. And you got your, you know, millions of people going through it. It's a, it's a fun science experiment. Um, um, that's gone viral, but but if we really want to do this on social media, you know, we got we got we got a minute, thirty seconds with people. So how do you condense this? And the other thing they said is like, look, we don't, we can't be edgy. We don't want to talk about climate, immigration, vaccines. We don't, not not nothing political. We don't, you know, they don't say this, but I, I imagine they don't want to upset their user base. Um, and so we had to go back to the drawing board and come up with a completely inactivated dose. Uh, so so no risks this time. Um. And um, what we came up with was this idea of uh, popular culture. And so we thought, what if the weakened dose could be something like Star Wars? Um, and, you know, I assume Cass Sunstein immediately loved this because of his writings on, uh, on Star Wars. But, 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 but I'm not sure, you know, Star Wars is not for everyone. So we, we share this, this Star Wars sort of thing. But, but um, um, <laughs> a lot of our interventions are also colored by, by our own... Um, uh, childhood, um, so a lot, you know, we're a Family Guy, uh, South Park, Star Wars, and so Google. And uh, and an unrelated thing, they sort of uh, uh, pilot tested this with Gen Gen Zs, uh, and and we got some comment that said, "Hmm, uh, Simpsons, Star Wars must be for old people." Um, and so you know, I was like, "Well, you know, it's still it's still on TV, so uh, can't be can't be that old." But um, let me get back to the point. So we did these videos. And the weekend dose here is uh, is a clip from Star Wars, and so uh, YouTube uses a lot of um, uh, techniques that are slightly different from news headlines, uh, and so they, they have political gurus that lure people in, sometimes particularly young men, to try to radicalize them uh, with extremist rhetoric. And some of this stuff is really subtle, um, so use of, of cherry picking, 
uh, false dichotomies, scapegoating groups in society, um, and they, they, they dress it up as pseudo-profound content, but then actually use logical fallacies uh, to convince people of arguments. Um, to give some political examples, uh, you know, the NRA, the National Rifle Association in the U.S., uh, I just saw a tweet recently about, oh, either, either if you're against AR-15s, this was during the shootings, if you're against AR-15s, then uh, you're against the Second Amendment. Uh, I mean, uh, this is a false dichotomy, right? You can support the right to bear arms and not be happy about uh, people walking around with these types of rifles. Um, but it's subtle. You know, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Um, and so uh, extremists often use this as a way to, uh, to dupe people. And so how can we inoculate people against these techniques in a non-political way? So here's where Star Wars comes in. So we show people uh, a video in the ad space on YouTube, um, clip from uh, Revenge of the Sith, uh, where Anakin Skywalker talks to Obi-Wan Kenobi. So for people who don't know, Anakin Skywalker later becomes Darth Vader. Um, and he says, you know, either you're with me or you're my enemy. And then Obi-Wan replies, deconstructing the false dichotomy, um, saying, you know, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Um, um, and then the narrator sort of says, look, you know, nobody wants to be a Sith, right? Don't be a manipulator. Don't use false dichotomies. Uh, and, and that's the weakened dose. And then we give people more microdoses. Uh, here's more examples of how you can spot this uh, to train the brain to, to understand the, the, the patterns that they need to look out for. Um, and you can put that in the, in the ad space on YouTube. So before you might see a harmful video, right? It can go whoop in the ad space, can even go in the non-skippable ad space so that it's not opt-in. And you can scale that kind of quote-unquote nudge to use the term uh, in, uh, we don't call it a nudge, but, but, but you know, uh, you can scale that across um, billions of people, which they haven't done yet. But we've done the research. They were impressed. It worked. Um, at least, you know, it, it had positive effects in, in helping people spot these techniques. And I think the bonus is that fact checking is great. It's important. Context is important. But, you know, with a lot of this stuff, the context is irrelevant. So, you know, a false dichotomy is going to be a false dichotomy. It was 2000 years ago in the time of Aristotle. It's still a false dichotomy now. That's not going to change. You don't need to know much about the world in order to spot a false dichotomy or to know what scapegoating is or to know what's polarizing. And you know what? Sometimes a claim like, oh, all people of this political affiliation are evil or, or they're, you know, they're, they're bad. You can't really fact check that. Um, even it, let's say it turns out to be true in the future. It's still polarizing. It still has low epistemic qualities. You know, it's probably we don't want that toxic stuff. Um, and so regardless, really, of whether it's real or fake, our approach has been if we can empower people to spot manipulation, regardless of who's using it, people are informed to make up their own minds. So we've had an explanation of how misinformation works. We've heard about potential solutions like pre-bunking and delivering that in the form of games or very short mandatory YouTube ads. Our last question for you, Sander, very briefly in our last minute together is, what do you see as the future of the fight of misinformation? Yeah, so some people ask me uh, fairly the question, well, you know, can bad actors use pre-bunking and, and, and AI and, and, and so on? And I think, um, yes. Um, so to some extent, you know, we are in a in in in, in misinformation kind of war, uh, and it is a race. And and the, the the earlier we're we're there to prevent things, I think the better. We've shown that therapeutic inoculation can also work when people are on the fence, but it's definitely better to to, to be there first. So what what's the ultimate solution? I think the ultimate solution is to actually scale this from an early age uh, as early as possible to implement this in national educational curricula around the country. I wrote an op-ed about how Finland has been doing this 
and they score very highly on information resilience because they've been training their kids to spot propaganda um, um, from a very early age. And, uh, you know, me saying this might cause lots of people to ruffle feathers. And so let me let me let me uh, add a caveat. The best way, I think, to do this is not to tell people what they need to believe, but to uh, use what we call this sort of technique based inoculation, just empower people to spot the techniques of manipulation wherever they might be coming from uh, and using non-political examples. You can use humor like Star Wars or, or whatever you can come up with. Um, and that's really um, how we're going to how we're going to win the misinformation race uh, race, I think, by inoculating our future generations uh, and empower them to spot and neutralize this type of content. And the last thing I'll say is that people can also spread this themselves. So, you know, my my aim behind all of this was not for there to be some Uber inoculator um, or just for social media companies or governments to do this. I think we're empowered and, and some even some responsibility to help inoculate each other with us with the power of a simple conversation. If you know that some falsehood is, is circulating, somebody hasn't seen it yet, there's an opportunity to, to inoculate. Fantastic, right? As you said at the beginning, prevention is much better than cure. So, Sander, thank you very much for this conversation. This was fantastic. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with, perhaps where they could find out more about you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. People can check out resources on uh, um, uh, foolproofbook.com or sandervanderlinden.com. Um, it's all on the website. Uh, most of our games are free. Um, all of our resources are free and open. Um, um, and so if people want to you know, visit those websites, including inoculation.science, which houses all of our resources, people are welcome to do so. Fantastic. It's not often we get to end the podcast with a recommendation for some games. I love that. So thanks a lot, Sander. It was a fantastic uh, conversation. We were concerned at the beginning of the conversation with Suzanne that your book is so rich that one hour is maybe not enough, but our recommendation for our listener is to read your book and <laughs> to so see you in some months at the Human Advantage Conference. Absolutely. Fantastic conversation. And thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.